0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: When will the Parliamentary Ethics Committee resume investigating Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Morneau's involvement with We Charity? I've been curious about that for some time, and Charlie joins us. What about that, Charlie? Uh, Will the investigation into Trudeau and Morneau be uh, part of the activities going forward by the Parliamentary Ethics and Finance Committees?
1: Well, Roy, I think uh, uh, the investigation will continue. Um, We need to re-establish the committees. Uh, I think one thing we may be interested in looking at is uh, perhaps why we prorogued in the first place. Um, There's nothing that suggest to us from the speech from the throne that there was a reason to prorogue other than to take the political heat off the prime minister. And we remember that Justin Trudeau swore in an election that he wasn't going to do what Stephen Harper did, which is when the going gets tough, shut the house down and, and leave. So I think we'll look at, uh, I, I'd like to look at why prorogation was used, because I think it's an extreme measure. Um, we have a number of unanswered questions with the we charity. Um, I would like to bring David McNaughton, um, the liberal insider who was working for the very controversial company Palantir, uh, who he was found guilty of ethics violations because I put in a complaint on him. I think we should get, I'd like to find out what the heck Palantir, a company that has really, really notorious uh, data surveillance, human rights issues, how they got to meet so many top insiders. So, Roy, we're going to have a busy fall, regardless of all the other stuff we've got to do with COVID and getting people through what may be a very tough winter. But we certainly have a lot of questions that still need to be answered.
0: So, the party, or at least the ethics committee, is going to be reformed, but not necessarily with the same players, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. They will be. The, par- the committees will be reformed. So it's up to each party to decide. Um, who who's going to sit where, and then those, each of those committees will reestablish their um, you know their mandate. I, I'm feeling with ethics uh, personally. I would like to start moving on to some of the other issues and maybe move some of the finance stuff. leave to see if finance committee is going to continue. We've been sort of stepping on each other's toes over the summer. I think a little bit, but that was because the scandal was so big. We may start to focus a little more. For example, as I said on ethics, I think the McNaughton findings of guilt against the former um, uh, ambassador are really really concerning about how you get access with the trudeau government but you know we'll play all our cards over the next few weeks but i figure by mid-october we'll be back at a number of these issues
0: would you remind us please what happened as far as the documentation that you were requiring um from the government is concerned how many redacted pages did you get and did you receive those after the prorogation, the day after,
1: well, there were over five thousand pages, uh, and many of them were redacted. And in good faith, the opposition parties had said we would accept redacted documents uh, done by the law clerk to protect the privacy or you know personal emails of you know uh, government staff who have nothing to do with political scandal. That was what we were expecting. Instead, we got page after page blacked out. And it wasn't done by the law clerk, it was done by the prime minister's office. So that's very concerning. But what we saw in those documents was certainly a pretty clear picture of political interference. Um, you know, Roy, we'd talked about how I had pieced together Artis Chagger's role in this. We found in the documents photos of Justin Trudeau's mother. Uh, and wife being promoted as part of the we pitch, which I think is so beyond the pale. And we never saw in any of those 5,000 pages anybody referencing that they thought there may be a conflict of interest here. So if the prime minister was telling us publicly that, you know, they they did, the, they did they asked the tough questions, well, I if they did, they probably wouldn't have blacked that part of it out. So what did they black out and why? And again, these are questions I'd like to get answers to.
0: Yeah, Charlie, how many chances does an MP or a senator receive as far as convictions on ethics violations or lapses is concerned? Is there a finite number?
1: <laughs> no, Roy, there is not. Um now some of these so it depends on the case. Um uh, I was the one who called for the uh investigation into Mr. Germy uh, Graywall, the um uh the mr Greywall, the liberal mp who's now under rcmp investigation for all manner of things of of uh, issues re- started out on the india trip and now it's gone into a serious criminal investigation so i think that one ethics investigation certainly did him in but our prime minister is up at uh chalking up a number three on the list and that's i think that's just not acceptable it, it ethics has to start from the top and that's the message that you send uh to everybody these are rules They're not just guides, they're the rules, they're the law of the land.
0: Just remind us where you were as far as the questioning was concerned of the Prime Minister and Mr. Morneau, but where were you in the questioning when the prorogation took place?
1: Well, we were just on the verge of getting the documents, so that certainly was going to um, raise a number of questions. Uh, We were also um, expecting the documents relating to the Trudeau family um, and their dealings with we. And, Roy, I want to make it clear, I am not interested in going after the Trudeau family for their financial work. Um, you know, that that's their business. But that the, we found out, we had just found out that the Kielbergers were paying Margaret Trudeau and Sasha Trudeau to work their corporate events, that the we uh, charity board had been told the Trudeaus were not getting paid, and we've never get a, we don't know exactly how much we, we believe it's in the order of 500,000. so we were just about to start going through those documents and we haven't received those documents from from the from we charity yet. So that could be very problematic uh, for the government's arguments if there's stuff in there that contradicts what's been said. Mm-hmm.
0: What can you tell me about the uh, arrangement or the agreement between the new Democratic Party? and the Liberal Party, uh, Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau, that will essentially safeguard the Liberals from a non-confidence
1: vote. Well, really, I think that, I mean, we've, we've gotten a pretty clear message going, coming from, all, I think, all the parties, except the bloc, but the, I'm, I'm not counting the bloc uh, much on, on stuff these days, but, you know, Mr. O'Toole certainly said he didn't want to go to an election. We're seeing the numbers spiking, um, and this winter could be very hard. So our our deal with them is pretty straightforward um you know the liberals have promised the moon in the throne speech but they promised the moon at every election and, and walk away so they were certainly uh, they were singing the new democratic party greatest hits on pharma care and a number of other issues but they've done that many times our focus was we had a lot of people who are self-employed independent business uh who if they drop the serb to 1600 a month and people don't have work it's going to be economically devastating. So we said. The CERB we is done
0: now, right? The CERB is done today.
1: CERB is done, but there's going to be transitioned uh, to a new program, uh, which was going to pay people only $1,600 a month. So, uh, you know, I was talking to a, a woman who was a, a psychologist who just set up her business. She can't have a practice. So we got to get people through the winter. So that's. We made an agreement on that, and we also made an agreement. On on people being able to take sick time because we see a lot of people are going into work sick and we've had a number of super spreader cases. So, what's the Fed's role there? We wanted to see that deal. So that's what you do in a minority you, you negotiate point by point and we'll see where we are in the spring with these guys. But that doesn't mean Roy that just be, we got an agreement on this. It doesn't mean we back off on issues of accountability. <laughs> well, I'm, I know you are still gung ho to go at them on a bunch of issues.
0: I know you won't back off, Charlie. Sarah, how are you?
2: Oh, well, a mixture of frustrated, disappointed, and a tiny bit hopeful.
0: <laughs> Ye- yesterday, there was a, um, a, a virtual uh, national effort to make the case for family reunification. And uh, it was done, I thought, extremely, extremely well. You participated in that, Uh, Faces of Advocacy hosted it, it's on YouTube, people can go to youtube.com and just go to Faces of Advocacy. The message was very clear, and that is that you and Jacob and other families in Canada, other Canadians, and their spouses, fiancés, closest human beings to them overseas, want to be reunited, and yet, you're still waiting. Um, Mm -hmm. What's this little bit of hope that you were telling us about? What are you feeling? What are you seeing?
2: Uh, So during the virtual rally yesterday, one of the Liberal MPs who's been very supportive of our cause, uh, MP Nathaniel erskine smith he actually said that um, the exemption is coming next week, so that being this coming week. So, you know, this is something that it does stir up hope inside of us, but that being said, we've heard this a few times now, that. You know your your exemption is coming it's coming soon it's coming soon and we've been disappointed every single time so that's why I say I'm just a little hopeful because I don't want to I don't want to get excited and I don't want to you know put my heart into it until I hear the actual announcement
0: Well you have worked so very hard you've sent over 100 letters and uh, we talked about that last weekend and you really heard nothing back from members of parliament or from the cabinet or from the prime minister. But I think public pressure is now really coming to bear and I don't see how they can avoid doing what really needs to be done. And that is allowing you and Jacob and others who are so close to one another to be reunified. Jacob, as you're waiting in the UK to come to Canada, how are you handling it now?
2: Um, I, I have always been feeling a little bit more optimistic than Sarah does.
0: Um
2: and I think yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this week. Um I joke that every week I say that I want to be out of the UK by Friday. Um but yeah. Um I think what Sarah was saying with the, sort of we've been burnt quite a lot by promises or false hopes. Um so we're I mean I'm cautiously optimistic right now.
0: Sarah, remind us about your health condition. There are people who are listening now who won't have been listening last weekend. They know that you're struggling with health, and they know how important it would be to, to you to have Jacob by your side. Remind us what it is you're dealing with.
2: Yeah, so in early July, I was diagnosed with stage 2 uh, thyroid cancer. So I've already undergone a really major surgery, a full thyroidectomy, as well as a right, left, and central neck dissection uh, which is about as fun as it sounds, um, and now I'm in a recovery and waiting period for radiation, which is scheduled to begin in November.
0: You really need to have your your Jacob by your side, yes. and uh, you you really really do. And I really yeah. uh, let's make the case here that our listeners across the country can approach their members of parliament and really should, and and continue to lobby on your behalf.
2: Absolutely, and it's. You know, Jacob said every week he hopes that by Friday, you know, he'll be here. And this coming Friday is actually his birthday, so that would be a great birthday gift.
0: So you're ready and you're packed, eh, Jacob? Uh, my suitcase
2: is there waiting. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what? Uh, what? What did you take away, Sarah, from the uh, from the virtual event yesterday, from the uh, the virtual event nationally? Which our listeners can again see on YouTube. Uh, just go to YouTube.com and look for Faces of Advocacy. What was the takeaway for you?
2: The takeaway there was that this this is a movement that is bigger than just me and Jacob. There were over two hundred people um, there, and they had members of parliament from just about every party. You know, there was a there was Green Party, Bloc Québécois, Conservative, and Liberal as well. So this issue is really it, it is nationwide, it is affecting thousands of people. And, you know, the the support is a lot bigger than I think people realize. So it's, it was very encouraging for me to see the depth and the level of support from all, all of these MPs. It's, you know, uh, uh, all these, you know, all these parties, and it was just really encouraging for me to see that and to see the hundreds of other people who are separated from their families as well. there is there's a lot of strength uh, that you draw from from just seeing you know others in the same situation.
0: My sense is that you would not have had liberal MPs there if the government was going to wasn't going to move on it. Uh, and that to me is a signal that they're going to do what they need to do, what they must do, what they recognize is uh, is absolutely necessary, and people will not tolerate them not doing this. So I would be very surprised if you and Jacob are not together very, very soon. I'm going to be off next weekend, and I suspect by the time I get back, we'll be talking to you both in Canada. At least that has to happen. Thank you both. <laughs> Stay optimistic. We want you back together.
2: Thank you so Thank much, you. Roy. Appreciated. appreciate
0: it. What's your feeling about the speech from the throne and the prorogation of Parliament?
3: Well, I think I'm echoing what a lot of people have already said, which is we really just prorogued for that speech because that speech could have been given seven weeks ago. And it does seem as if that all they wanted to do was to avoid having the committees continue to meet and continue to dig Mm -hmm. and continue to try to put a little bit of light on what happened with respect to the, the grant or the contribution agreement that we were supposed to get from uh, from the Liberal government. So I'm, uh, I'm disappointed. I thought we'd see a little bit more. I bet you they thought they were going to do a little bit more, and then they took a bit of a signals check and realized that Canadians uh, really were just hunkered down and thinking about the health and not thinking about a grand future because they can only see into next week, not into next year.
0: Yeah. Uh, so so let's go back to the issue of the investigation it's mr Trudeau. i'm mr Morno in the in the we issue but let's go back to last year now and uh, talk about snc and the pmo and jody wilson raybould and jane philpot and all the uh the collateral damage that took place but what did we come away with ultimately where does this all stand is it still open for investigation what are the questions you still want answered
3: well, I still believe that there are seven witnesses who can come forward to tell us exactly what happened and who was directed to say what to whom. And I do believe it's important because a lot of the players still have office within the Prime Minister's office. and They would have been around during the time in which uh, people were using influence to try to tell the Attorney General to do something she didn't want to do and didn't think was appropriate to do. And I do believe that there should be more light on it. I think it's a fundamental piece of Canadian democracy. But much like everything else, time does wear away people's ambition to get things done like that. And as a result, I, I don't see it coming forward, Roy, and I'm sad about that. And unless the RCMP are coming up with something, um, I don't know whether or not we're actually going to get any further on that file. You know what I think, though? In the future, 20 years from now, when all of those cabinet documents can be released, perhaps somebody... We'll come back and write an expose on what really went down, and we can all look at it in reflection and say, oh, we'll never do that again.
0: If it disappears, if it has disappeared, that is disturbing. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was not permitted to share what she wanted with Canadians when she was at committee with with you and the other MPs. Mm-hmm. She was removed as attorney general, eventually also from the Liberal Party. Also, the former health minister, Dr. Jane Philpott, was removed from the Liberal Party. There are just too many loose ends that that need at least some uh, reconciliation. And, uh, and at least if it gets to the point where a year of inactivity makes an issue disappear, one that was significantly serious, that doesn't augur well for where we are and what we're doing.
3: No, it doesn't. But and there was an attempt made, if you recall, Roy, to bring it back and have it to be subject of a committee um, review, a committee investigation at the beginning of this minority parliament, and it was voted down. And the uh, the Liberals had the cooperation of the Bloc Québécois on that to make sure it wasn't going to be coming back to committee. And that's a shame because it is the appropriate place for a little bit further information to be gotten from it. And I agree with you. it's uh, It is a shame because if these things aren't, viewed upon and aren't punished, um, then they're going to happen again and again and again. And, you know, this is why we have an ethics law, so this stuff doesn't happen. And that's why we separated prosecutorial decision-making from politics, and they just ran right all over it as soon as they could.
0: Is there one particular question that you want answered? One particular aspect of that inves investigation or the, the hearings that you were so integrally involved with—is there one particular issue that just grates yeah. that you want
3: an answer to? Yep, I want to know why Jody Rosen was at Center for Resignation because if you everything, she would tell us everything up until the point where she said why she couldn't. Um, serve any longer in the Prime Minister's cabinet, and she couldn't disclose that because she was bound by confidence on that issue. So something happened that caused her to go from somebody who was uh, watching what was happening and basically had decided that she was going to carry the load of being bullied and not worry about whether or not um, there was further attempts to subvert the prosecutorial independence. But something happened, and she's not allowed to tell us what it was. I'd like to know what it was. I'd really like to know what it was, because that's what caused Jane Philpott to do a gut check on whether or not she wanted to serve alongside.
0: And uh, Jane Philpott did really say that it was, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but there was activities that were taking place in the Prime Minister's office or had to do with Mr. Trudeau. I hope I'm being accurate here, that had her concerned enough that she was speaking out.
3: Yeah, it's something along those lines. I mean, she took a very, very, you know, principled stance on it. But I do believe it all does go back to whatever happened that caused Jody Wilson-Raybould to realize uh, I was able to take the demotion or it's not even a demotion. I mean, Veterans Affairs is incredibly important. But I was able to take the lateral move from justice to Veterans Affairs. And I'm happy because I enjoyed the work. But you've gone one step too far and now I'm out. And I want to know what the one step too far was.
0: Michael, thank you very much for the time. When we look back at the throne speech, was there any, did you hear any rationale for the proroguing of Parliament?
4: It's funny, that was my first question, and I actually read the speech twice after I listened to it, because no. I mean, let's face it, I, I think it's uh, fair to say that it was really largely, a majority of it was a rehashing of previous promises. For example, when we come to PharmaCare, when we come to uh, child daycare, uh, those, I you know, appreciate that's been a promise for a long time, but it was part of the 2019 campaign. You know, a million jobs, uh, I mean, and especially depending how you count those, for example, if you're saying I prevented a layoff, ergo that is part of the million jobs created. But be that as it may, there was so little new here. I mean, keep in mind that maybe a quarter of this speech you know, started to talk about uh, COVID, but three quarters was really just about more more liberal policy, more government, more kind of times. And I think it was measured in this. Uh, you know, you go through the speech and you actually do some number counting, and I know there's more to it than that, but uh, they use the word COVID less, significantly less, than they use the word sort of investment. Because keep in mind, governments never spend money. They invest money, on, at least as far as they're concerned. So there was nothing. There was, I was actually sincerely surprised how little new there was in the speech, I think I think it's fair to say that we were promised a big bold vision. That's why they were proroguing Parliament. I didn't hear it, and I don't think I haven't read anyone anyone who thought they had heard it. Uh, so no, I didn't see a thing that sort of suggested that that was a a, a valid rationale for proroguing Parliament.
0: Michael, there was there was another word uh, that uh, doesn't seem to have a relationship with uh, the government, and that word is austerity. In fact, uh, during the throne speech, the point was made that this is not the time for austerity, and yet Canadians, by majority, told Ipsos just a couple of days ago that uh, the economic recovery is number one, and they said that oil and gas must feature in the, uh, in the recovery, but austerity wasn't heard.
4: Well, I think the, the bottom line is that you won't find any economists saying, yeah, this is a time to, to cut back, but I think there's a big difference between uh, saying And and that's always been a red herring, by the way. If you look at successive uh, federal, federal budgets, you see spending always go up. So what it's being used as usually is saying that the rate of growth may have been slowed. And we're calling that austerity. In this case, though, I think it was a complete red herring. It's not like you're hearing the Conservatives or the NDP or the Green Party saying, you know, have a dramatic cutback on spending. But I think what's legitimate is saying, where is the money going? We're going to have a $380 billion deficit at this point. And any other new money that gets added onto it at this point, I think it's fair to say where is it going and why is it going there? Is it actually going to improve the productive capacity of our economy? And I think there's a lot of questions. And I it's a throne speech, and I get that. But boy, this was one of the things you'll hear is traditionally throne speeches are pretty vague. But this is not a traditional time. I would have expected a few more specifics in this. To say that you're going to cure cho- chronic homelessness. I mean, to be honest, I read that. I rolled my eyes because I've heard it so much before. You know, the same with the, the daycare plan. How, I, mean, I, I recall hearing that in 1993. I mean, this is an old story, and this is a new pandemic. It's not to say that, obviously, if we're going to have shutdowns of the economy the way we've been experiencing, we need more daycare because it's removing a huge part of the workforce that predominantly are you know, women who have to stay home with their children. So, yes, that, that is a, a valid program. Obviously, we need to see details. We're going to have to work with the provinces, but nobody's recommending austerity. I mean, I really thought that was sort of like a dog whistle to their own, yeah. you know, to ten years ago. And then, when you come to the question, and, and I certainly have it is, uh, and I got asked this uh, the other day by someone in government. I said, "You're not, you can't get a full recovery without oil and gas. Period. You can't get a full recovery without tourism, without accommodations, uh, without the recreational part of, uh, of the economy. That's not going to happen." And that's what we're going to bump up against in the next few months. And I didn't think, I thought it would have been valid to give us a few more hints. Like, I'm very surprised that six months into a pandemic, we still don't know when the economic recovery plan is coming. And by their own words, by the way, because some supporters of the government will come out and say, no, that was economic. No, they're telling me that the economic recovery plan is still in the offing. And they're also telling me they don't have a plan for a budget at this point. So their own words, I'm just surprised it's taken this long. I mean, Michael surprises in this pandemic.
0: I spoke with uh, Yves Giroux twice recently, the parliamentary budget officer, and I just ran by the numbers by him that he's so familiar with and he's done all the studies on. But when I ran the what was then a three hundred and forty three billion dollar deficit and a trillion dollar national debt past him, he said just hearing those numbers makes my head spin. And then he talked about the concerns about uh, universal n- income, and he costed that, his office costed that, uh, between 45 and $91 billion for six months. So that takes me to, and I'm not an economist, but that takes me to the next question that I always ask is tax dollars versus borrowed money. Tax dollars are not going to be nearly enough to pay the bills. So we're going to continue to borrow money, and we're going to do what? Count on interest rates to stay where they are? That's a, that's that's that, that's not a bet I would normally want to take.
4: Yeah, well, you've certainly nailed it there because when I've heard and and I know that he's getting advised, uh, the prime minister's getting advised. I know some of the economists' work that are advising him, saying the debt's affordable. Let me just start with that. I actually get my blood boils when I hear that because there's a huge number of assumptions you're making if the debt is indeed affordable. One of them, one you just alluded to, which is very very key, which is. Interest rates stay low when we come to whatever length of debt we take on here at this point. So if they take it on a 10-year basis, they take it on a 20-year basis, and they will mix it like that. It won't be all or none. So that means you're telling me what interest rates will be when that matures. You really want to make forecasts on interest rates 10 and 20 years out because they're never paying this debt back. All they're going to be concerned with is doing the carrying cost here. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And in order to make interest rate projections like that, you're making currency uh, uh, evaluations. You're telling me what the U.S. recovery and global recovery is going to look like. It's just a huge morass. And I just think we've been way too casual when we throw out the words that debt's affordable. And coming back to the Parliamentary Budget Office, they're making very clear we can't keep going on this path for more than one or two more years. But again, when we do borrow like this, this part is very similar to individuals. All you're doing is limiting future future options that you have. The debt will be there no matter what, no matter if the economy is strong or weak. We've already we got, we got to pay our bills in, in that way. So I think we've been way too casual with this. I'm not, personally, my own forecast would be for higher rates to come, but coming out of a problem with the monetary system. And I think that's coming within three years. I think we're going to see a sovereign debt crisis. Building globally. We've already seen it in Argentina. We've seen it in Turkey. Those are big warning signs. Uh, And I think, uh, you know, in Canada is part of that global financial community. And let's face it, sorry, one more thing, and I know I'm going on here. The key component here coming into September that we talked about on Money Talks clearly predicted was a liquidity crisis. And people should understand the only reason you have low interest rates today is because the Bank of Canada has been so aggressive in in the credit markets, think about this. Whenever you lend money, the more risky it is, the higher rate of interest you normally get. No one will debate with me that it's not a risky environment. There's a ton of uncertainty out there. Well, normally you'd have to pay higher interest rates to borrow. But no, the Bank of Canada is being aggressive in their, in their approach to keep interest rates down. Same thing in the United States. We're talking trillions of dollars. In Canada, they say a minimum of $5 billion per week being bought of government of Canada bonds if they did not do that our problem would have been much more severe because who the heck's going to be lending to certain industries or if, if any and of course government uh, bond borrowing would be higher so that's a real key component so uh, again they're making forecasts about that that make me uncomfortable I'm not willing to bet with it